0: Welcome to Podcast as Code, a show about the operations side of the software development lifecycle. I'm Mitchell Scott. And I'm Gabe Cook. Today, we're going to talk about Kubernetes, but first we have an update.
1: So we've set up a Podcast as Code Discord server. If any of you have questions, comments, suggestions, or just want to chat with other people interested in DevOps and Kubernetes, look for the link in the show notes or at
0: podcastascode.show. I think that's the only update we had, so let's move on to our main topic today, Kubernetes. Um, Before we start talking about Kubernetes, I guess we should ask ourselves, what is a container? And this is kind of a hard thing to talk about because uh, it's a lot of
1: really advanced technologies that conveniently work together to make something which is surprisingly simple in the end. Um, A container, you can think about it as a little bit similar to a virtual machine or a VM but they're a lot lighter than VMs they they don't run an entire operating system inside of your regular machine so you know they can take up a lot less memory and cpu while still giving you some you know just like the name says containerization like some sandboxing if you run an app inside of a container it can't necessarily Just hit everything on your computer, which is great. Um, But
0: I think that's how I would describe it. I don't know. Is there anything you'd add? Yeah. So comparing it with a VM, like a VM is going to bring its own like set of virtualized hardware. It's going to bring its own operating system kernel. Then it's going to bring in, you know, if it's Linux, it's going to bring in like all the user land tools and everything as well. And with a container, you kind of strip out those first few layers like you're reusing the host's kernel and even some of the system utilities, I think. Um, but kind of all the user land stuff is separate, like it's containerized. So, you know, you can ship multiple different applications with different runtimes, different libraries, and those are all kind of separate. Right. And the most kind of the most prevalent name you've heard in this space is Docker. Um, yes, they weren't, they weren't the first people to develop containers. That was kind of a Linux technology that was already in development. But they really made some slick developer tools that that really streamlined the process of container creation and and running of containers. Yeah, I mean, the Docker group
1: kind of are the the group of people that, you know, put a bow on it and changed something which was definitely doable, but very complicated and took a lot of setup um, and a lot of know how and made it simple enough that. You know, you can spin up a container with just a few commands on any operating system.
0: Yeah. And Docker, um, I think they've been around about 10 years. I think they got their start around 2013. So at this point, it's a pretty mature project and offering and containers are used in production all over the place. Um. So that's containers. Yes. Yeah, so and now let's talk about the main topic of today. What is Kubernetes?
1: Kubernetes is a whole open source ecosystem originally created by Google, and it actually is the project that kind of seeded the uh, Cloud Native Computing Foundation, the CNCF. So it's now, of course, a graduate of the CNCF. It is a system that deals with the deployment, scaling, automation, and management of containers. It handles a lot of different aspects of automation that containers were lacking previously and it's a very powerful tool so coming up we'll talk about a lot of the technical benefits of kubernetes but first of all i've always thought that kubernetes has a cool theme surrounding a lot of its branding and a lot
0: of the third-party project branding do you want to talk about that a little bit so the name is um like based on a Greek name for helmsman or pilot, which is kind of cool. Other uh, logo is a, uh, like a ship's wheel, um, surrounded by a septagon because they're the initial Google project that kind of s- inspired Kubernetes was called Borg from, I think it was from Star Trek. I'm not a big mm-hmm. tricky, yeah. but, um, it it's a seven sided thing from like, I think there's a Star Trek character seven of nine and that's what that's from. But Kubernetes have, being uh, like Helmsman as its name, like it's a lot of the stuff's nautical themed, which, which is fun. Yeah. Like a lot of the adjacent Kubernetes projects are nautical themed. Like you've got Helm and for a while Helm had Tiller. And, you know, there's a, there's a project called Harbor, which is a container registry for Kubernetes. So you'll, you'll see a lot of nautical theming around Kubernetes, which is fantastic. Agreed. I
1: really love the nautical theme. I think it's a lot of fun, and I love that there are so many third-party projects that try to, you know, put their own spin on that same theme. It makes for this really fun ecosystem. So, behind the scenes, Kubernetes is what's called a container orchestrator. Do you want to talk
0: about that a little bit? A container orchestrator brings in a lot of additional tooling to help run containers in production. Um, you know, on your laptop as a developer, you can pretty easily spin up a Docker container or several Docker containers. Um, but when you want to take that into a production environment, you really want something orchestrating those. You don't want to be SSHing into hosts and doing like Docker run, whatever the image is, right? You want some automation in place to help you manage these applications and these services.
1: Yeah, well, with Docker and Docker is great. I think it has a lot of good use cases, Um, but it's kind of like you are the orchestrator. Like when you're using Docker, you don't just tell it what you need. You say, "Okay, I want you to make this container. And again, there are ways to get Docker to kind of watch the container and make sure it stays running, but it's not super powerful. So you are the one who has to make sure that your containers are up and Able to talk to each other and everything. Where an orchestrator, it's more like you just say, okay, hey, I need this container. I don't care, you know, maybe I have multiple servers and I don't care where it goes. I don't care how you do it, but this is the container I need. And then it it creates it and monitors it and everything for you.
0: Yeah, and Kubernetes is not the only container orchestrator. Um, Docker developed one called Docker Swarm. It's not super popular in kind of in the industry. I haven't come across it anywhere in the wild. HashiCorp has Nomad, which I have seen. I have come across that when running production workloads. It's pretty well maintained. Um, and I think is getting reasonably mature as far as features that goes. I know a few years ago when we were evaluating using it, there were, there were some things like multi-tenancy that it didn't support super well.
1: Yeah. A lot of times I've seen HashiCorp Nomad pushed as a, simpler kubernetes alternative so personally i love running kubernetes from home but i I see how it can be complex so for some people they prefer you know just spin up a server and put nomad put docker and nomad on there and then nomad can manage your containers so i think maybe there's some simplicity and a little bit less to learn but personally i you know i've preferred kubernetes
0: yeah and kubernetes definitely is complex it is basically built on top of every major computing innovation since forever, right? Like we'll talk about some of the details later about what's going on under the hood and it doesn't develop a whole lot of tooling itself. It relies on a lot of other things at the operating system level and at the containerization level and then the networking level that have built been built before it. Um, but it, it brings all that together, and that makes it complex. It's There's a lot of pieces yeah. running under the hood, and if you want to understand all of them, it's a pretty steep learning curve, especially if you're starting with not a lot of experience running Linux servers or anything like that. So one of the big draws of Kubernetes is clustering, right? If you have a Docker host or a handful of Docker hosts, you're going to be managing the services that run on each of those individually. So you need a container orchestrator to help distribute workloads across multiple nodes in a cluster this is really important for production use right you need multiple servers that gives you redundancy it gives you the ability to scale out your infrastructure based on resource usage it gives you the ability to scale down your infrastructure um, so that you don't have a bunch of idle servers running
1: yeah and it's nice that if you you know a server crashes or something if you have a little bit of extra compute Capability, then Kubernetes will notice that one of the servers crashed and just move all of your applications and databases and everything over to another server in the cluster that's still running, yeah, which is really nice.
0: yeah, Kubernetes has a highly available backend that manages the configuration of all your applications, like you said, Gabe, if a node fails for any reason, those workloads will just get restarted on another node and and potentially depending on like what flavor of Kubernetes you're using a new node may get spun up automatically as a result of that failure. Uh, Whereas if you were doing Mm -hmm. that on Docker directly on a node, you know, you would have to make sure that you were backing up all your configs and things somewhere else, and then go manually redeploy those on a node that was still running. Well,
1: or not even Docker. If you, you know, had a traditional server configuration where uh, this kind of gets into the whole pets versus cattle. Um, In the past, you know, you would, create a server and give it a unique name and spend a long time setting it up. And that's kind of known as like the pet mentality because like, you know, this server is my baby. I spent forever setting yeah, it all yeah. up. Whereas now, even with Docker, which, you know, in my opinion, is much better than a traditional server. It's still more of a pet versus cattle where they might not even have a name. You just have a bunch of, <laughs> bunch of nodes that can handle, handle your workloads. And you don't have to spend time setting them up. So if you need more, you just buy
0: some more cattle. Yep. Then you don't feel bad about turning them off if you need to. Oh, no. (laughs) I still feel a little bad. (laughs) Um, Jeez. So in a Kubernetes cluster, you'll have a couple different kinds of nodes. You'll have the control plane nodes. In the past, these were called masters. We're kind of moving away from that nomenclature. Um, so I refer to them as controllers or mm-hmm. the control plane, and those are going to be responsible for, they run the Kubernetes API. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about, about how all that works. Um, they also run generally, they'll run a service called etcd, which is that highly available backend I mentioned where configuration and secrets are going to be replicated across the nodes in the cluster. And typically you'll have at least three of these preferably an odd number so that if some of them go down your Kubernetes API and therefore your Kubernetes control plane is still available. Um, So you can do things like deploy new workloads, exec into pods, and generally do work in the cluster. I think the control plane also
1: manages if you have, there's a certain type of resource that lets you automate tasks, um, schedule tasks, I mean, called the, you know, you can create cron jobs. And I think the master also handles those.
0: Yeah, so it, it handles scheduling. So one of the one of the things that happens if your control plane goes completely down is Kubernetes will lose the ability to schedule new pods or reschedule pods that have failed. So if your control plane goes down, the existing workloads will generally continue running unless they rely upon the Kubernetes API. And some things do, like those cron jobs you mentioned. But aside from that, like you're, you know, not all of the containers in the Kubernetes cluster will just immediately fail. Uh, they'll generally keep running while your API is down. Still not ideal because, you know, we have continuous integration and continuous deployment set up. So if our Kubernetes API goes down, for instance, our CI jobs can't run. We can't deploy updates to applications. And that's a problem.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Although it's nice that you can lose the entire control plane. And at least
0: ideally, all of the websites should keep functioning
1: as expected.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that brings us to the other kind of node, which is a worker. And these are the ones they run all the pods. So... They are most comparable to like a Docker host. They're running the actual containers. They're interfacing with the network. You know, network traffic is not going through the controllers. It's hitting the worker nodes directly through like Kube Proxy. So yeah, these are going to be your nodes that have a lot of CPU, a lot of memory. Um, the control plane nodes don't necessarily have to. Of course, that depends on the size of the cluster you're running and how busy your a- your Kubernetes API is. Uh, but in general, the control plane nodes can be pretty reasonably sized and the workers are going to be larger. Um, You can have kind of any number of workers that you want. There's no hard and fast rule about an odd number, for example, or or anything like that. You probably want at least two so that if one goes down, you still have the ability to run workloads somewhere. If you have two, they will get rescheduled to another worker that's running. If something happens to the one where the pods are running in originally. Although, Especially in a use case where you,
1: you know, like set up Kubernetes on your development machine or something and you're learning um, or something like that, it's completely fine to even just have one.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You can certainly have just one, especially like you mentioned, like for a home lab or whatever development cluster. A really good way to run this in a development environment is a Kubernetes flavor called K3S. It will let you run a controller and a worker on the same instance, the same node, So if you're wanting to get started in Kubernetes and you don't care about setting up a big cluster or anything like that, K3S is an awesome way to get started because it lets you do essentially a single standalone Kubernetes node that does it all. It does the control plane. It runs a worker as well. And that's not to say that that's what it's limited to. You can run K3S clusters and it's a production ready system for that too. Gabe, I think you and I both run K3S at home, right? Yeah, that's what I run here in my house. Um, even simpler than that,
1: there's k 8s and um, Minikube and Kind, which can run just you That's know, true. Yeah. on a development machine. Yeah. Uh, so if you just kind of want to play with, like, you know, how do I create a deployment in Kubernetes? You don't necessarily even need a server. Um, nowadays, you can actually just install Docker desktop, like Docker for Windows, Docker for Mac and it has kubernetes built in
0: too. So there it's pretty accessible which is nice. Yeah, it's gotten a lot easier, yeah, lately. Um so those are a couple flavors of kubernetes. There are others. Pretty much every public cloud has their own. Yeah. So Amazon has Elastic Kubernetes Service EKS, Azure has Azure Kubernetes Service AKS. Uh Google Cloud has the Google Kubernetes Engine GKE. Um if we pivot more towards like on-prem or kind of more Hosting. traditional enterprise-y stuff. There's VMware's Tanzu um, or IBM's OpenShift, which is based on Kubernetes, but they add some special sauce on top of it. So it's not a pure Kubernetes environment. Hmm. Um, I think they compare Kubernetes to the Linux kernel and like OpenShift would be like a distribution of Linux. So they're adding some some special tooling and stuff, but under the hood, it is Kubernetes. So you do get all the benefits of Kubernetes. Um, so if you're in like an IBM cloud Or, you know, if you're in the IBM ecosystem, then that might be an option for you. Um, I've also installed Kubernetes on-prem with KubeADM, which is kind of a more involved or advanced way to do it. It's, Mm -hmm. It's a lot more manual, so you're installing the Kubernetes packages and the container network interfaces and container runtime and everything manually and kind of linking all that together. I definitely would not recommend that for beginners unless you're just really wanting to nerd out about how to set up kubernetes from essentially from scratch. C and I haven't
1: actually created a cluster that way. So I've learned about a lot of these components just based on kind of what I have running, what was created out of the box and reading docs on it and guides. Um but at the same time, I'm sure you learn a lot more doing it that way. Yeah,
0: I actually created my first I actually created my first kubernetes cluster via kubeadm and it was and it was a lot It took me a week, a full, it took me a full weekend. And I, you know, I have a lot of experience from like server, like Linux server administration from before. Mm -hmm. So that part was fine, but it was involved. I I don't recommend that necessarily. Um, The easiest way is definitely the cloud platforms because you basically press a button in their console and then you wait however long it takes and they give you a Kubernetes service. You say that, but K3S is a single command. K3S is also super easy. (laughs) Yeah. Which is wild. Yeah. K3S is super nice. So we mentioned, we mentioned containers, and then I think I briefly mentioned pods yeah. when we were talking about workers. Gabe, what's the difference between a pod and a container? So this was actually really confusing for me at first
1: because Docker has Docker containers, and in Kubernetes, a container is a little bit more akin to a pod, but not really. They just kind of split it up into two different concepts. So in Kubernetes, a container is still a single container like unit, like you have, you know, ideally a container does one thing. It runs a single application or a single database or whatever. Um, but Kubernetes then also gives you the ability of grouping containers together very closely in a way where they'll even share the same kind of networking configuration. Like basically they will share the same IP address within the cluster. And that's what a pod is. So in Kubernetes, you don't work with containers directly very often. In fact, a lot of services just run a single container within a single pod. So it's easy to kind of mix up the terms. But yeah, the fact that you can create, you know, different types of services, like um, they have what's called init containers and side side... Are they actually called sidecars? They're not actually, they're like additional containers also sometimes called sidecars and nowadays ephemeral containers the fact that you can set all these up is really powerful so um init containers will start up before your main ones do additional containers are kind of you know secondary things services that you need um and then ephemeral you can create on demand and delete them on demand without dealing with the you know the main application
0: yeah, so in Kubernetes, a pod is like the minimally schedulable unit, right? Yes. So Kubernetes, it's, you know, in, in Kubernetes land, a pod is like, the, is like the atom. It's like the smallest <laughs> unit of matter. But there are, yeah. there are pieces inside that, but you deal with pods. <laughs> so you mentioned additional containers, and I th- I've seen those called sidecars in documentation. I don't think that's an official name for them, though. No, it's not sometimes you'll have services run as sidecars or as these additional containers, and those can do things like service discovery. So a lot of the service meshes will run those like Istio will run additional containers. I think in all your pods to help with service discovery and mapping um, you could have, there's other security tools that can do that. So you could have like, mm-hmm. you know, some security tool running within every pod in your cluster and that would run as an additional container. So you don't have to, worry about that when you define your main application container that just kind of gets bolted on and scheduled alongside your original container so it's pretty powerful but it it does make for some learning curve and you're like pods but also <laughs> containers yeah wait so a docker container
1: is a pod and it's like well no not really it's confusing
0: yeah so so to be clear there's pods and then pods can have multiple containers but containers can only be in one pod
1: another useful example is if you have an application that doesn't understand http but it's a web server so a lot of php servers will be like this they use something called fast cgi which is just different than php so you can't necessarily just expose them to the internet directly um i'm sure there are other you know services that use fast cgi but in kubernetes you can set it up in a way so your main container runs the app Then you have an additional container that runs a little proxy service that translates to HTTP. And then you can just expose HTTP from the pod so that, you know, you don't have to deal with all of that weird configuration in the cluster. What gets exposed is just standard HTTP. We all, you know, we all use it.
0: Yeah. And this, this helps conform to the like one thing per container rule that's best practices. Mm um you know you don't want to be building containers with like your main application and also like nginx or also a security tool bundled in it's better mm-hmm. to run those separately and kubernetes letting you run all those in the same pod that gets scheduled together is a really nice way to accomplish that yeah and actually that kind of leads to
1: namespacing too it's interesting how many levels of isolation you have like you have a cluster and then in the cluster you have what's called a namespace you have multiple namespaces to split up different applications and then within a namespace you might have an app and its database running um and then inside of that the app there might be multiple containers so there's a lot of levels but it equates to being able to do many different deployment strategies
0: yeah you mentioned ephemeral containers that's kind of a new feature that yeah i haven't used a whole lot yet because i'm still getting some of my clusters up to 1.25 when that feature was released um have you played have you been able to play with it much? I've used it a little bit. It's pretty cool.
1: Um they added a new command which we can we can link to their documentation on this uh, which is just kubectl debug and it's interesting. It lets you run a new container so sometimes it's a debugging image or something like that within the pod the existing running pod temporarily and then whenever you're done with it it goes away which in the past was not doable when you created a pod you set which containers it should have and that could never change so yeah. it's interesting but it's also very useful for debugging looking at like network logs tracing or you know for things called there's something called a distro list docker image and that's basically it's more secure but honestly more annoying it doesn't have any of the standard Linux tools. Ideally, it doesn't have anything except your application, maybe some you know HTTP certificates and time zone information, and that's it. So if you need a debug, you are kind of in trouble. So yeah. it's nice that you can spin up an ephemeral container and kind of hop in,
0: right? Because the best practice for building these containers is you're not including a lot of tools. Like you're not including ping and traceroute and no. dig or NSLOOKUP or anything like that. You are only including the bare minimum of the things that you need to keep the image sizes small so that your image pools are short. You don't have a lot of packages in your container to be like vulnerable for security issues and whatnot. So in the past, before this, if you wanted to add a container to a pod, you have to change the deployment manifest, which would restart the pod which means you lost whatever, you know, potentially you lost whatever you're trying to debug, right? Whatever was in memory. Exactly. Yeah. So these make it really nice to be able to hop into a running pod and, and troubleshoot stuff because troubleshooting in these stripped down containers can be a little tricky. Yeah. And like you said, it's good from a
1: security standpoint. I mean, I'm sure, you know, like you said, trace route and ping, these are very, old commands with a lot of history, I'm sure they're safe, but at the same time, the more things you have in a container, the more chance there is that something can get taken advantage of. So it's cool if you can exclude all of those and like an application turns out to have an exploit and somebody can, you know, actually get in a shell and do what's called an RCE, a remote code execution exploit. They won't have anything available. There's nothing to exploit because the container
0: is so minimal, yeah, and ideally you're running like not as root, so they can't like do anything
1: yeah, so that that's another nice thing actually in the past um it was hard to not run servers as root, so it's nice to be able to you right isolate processes and then limit them to not be root users.
0: Let's change gears a little bit and talk about some of the some of the pieces that make up Kubernetes or, or some of the things you have to think about when, when you use Kubernetes and I guess we can start with storage. Storage is kind of tricky. It's something that Kubernetes has some solutions for, but you know, there's, it doesn't necessarily solve anything itself. It relies on other technology to solve some of the tricky parts with storage.
1: Yeah. Well, and I feel like I should preface actually a lot of the discussion we're going to have with, uh, the fact that Kubernetes has drivers for everything. So um, storage can be tricky, and we'll get to why, but it also can depend on what cloud provider you're in or what tools True, you've yeah. installed. Uh, that's one thing that's cool about Kubernetes. They've made it so that all of this functionality, storage and networking and all all of that can be plugged into. So you know, if you host an AWS and you create... A certain thing it can natively interact with AWS yeah and then same thing if you you know are in Google or at your house so there are pros and cons to all of these and it kind of depends on how it's hosted so storage is really important especially in a container environment so if you've ever hosted an app on a server you know you you might be used to just saying okay let's make a directory and put files there but with a container By default, whenever that's restarted, any changes to the file system will be gone. So that's why persistence and storage is important because, you know, if a user uploads an image and then you restart the app, that image is not there anymore. So Docker has this. uh, Kubernetes has this too. They have a lot of different ways to manage storage. And it's not usually just hosted directly on the node because... If we have a cluster with three nodes and we have an application, it could be deployed to any one of these. So we can't just say, oh, yeah, you know, use the file system on the current node, because that's not predictable. In Kubernetes, you create what's called a persistent volume. And there's a lot of different tools that will manage this, you know, either inside the cluster or out of the cluster in some cloud provider. Then you can mount that volume to a specific location in your container.
0: Yeah. And there's kind of two classes of storage or two types of storage in Kubernetes. There's read, write once and read, write many read, write once is kind of what you think about when you think about, especially in a cloud environment, like mounting a disc to a virtual machine. That's effectively what it is um, for the most part. Mm -hmm. Now the, the read, write once part limits some of the cool features of Kubernetes. You can only have a single node reading storage from that volume or that disc. You could potentially have several pods on that node reading the storage. Um, So you can sometimes do cool stuff like rolling updates, but it's really not ideal if you want to take advantage of some of the more like scaly features of Kubernetes. Yeah. And at the same time, unfortunately it seems
1: like kind of from a platform standpoint, Like if somebody's providing these volumes, it's much easier to provide read, write once. So you'll, you'll see that's a lot more common and then you're just limited to either your application has to go down for a few seconds when it redeploys, or, you know, you have to spin up your own tool in front of that.
0: Yeah. So the most, the most common way to mount a read, write once volume is some kind of block storage. So in like Amazon land, that'll be an EBS volume that just gets attached directly to the VM that, that your Kubernetes node is running on. One thing to keep in mind with some cloud providers is these volumes are typically limited to specific availability zones. So if you have three Kubernetes nodes, each in a different availability zone, if one goes down, but your volume, so if you have a node in A, B, and C, if the node in zone A goes down and your volume is in zone A, it cannot get mounted to zones B or C. So that's something to plan for. I know Google Cloud has regional disks where you can have these uh, block level volumes in multiple zones, but that feature is not universal across the cloud providers. So it's something to pay attention to when you architect this stuff, read, write mini, you know, you'll come across it as RWX in documentation. And um, read, write ones as RWO. Yep. That's a little harder to solve. So Kubernetes natively can support NFS and Ceph. And I think GlusterFS for read, write mini, um, I'm sure there are other drivers or plugins that can do other things, but those are the common ones. Yeah. And in the distributed storage space, they're the most popular. NFS is kind of the easiest. It's also the worst. <laughs> it has a lot of downsides. Yeah, yeah it is the oldest and kind of the easiest to get going. I haven't personally played with cluster FS. I did use Ceph once. I used the Rook Ceph project, which is a CNCF mm-hmm. graduate. It seemed really cool. It used a lot of system resources, uh, particularly memory. It used a lot of memory just to just to have the volumes available. Well, and I I think all these tools use quite a bit, though, because I use another tool
1: called Longhorn, which when I tested it was a lot lighter than Ceph. But at the
0: same time, it still takes quite a bit of memory. Yeah, Longhorn's really cool. Um, It lets you kind of run a hyperconverged infrastructure, If you don't know what that is, traditionally, like in the data center space. Yeah, I don't know what that is. Of the past, you had your compute nodes running and they didn't have a lot of storage, like just the operating system for the hypervisors, effectively, potentially running off USB sticks or like flash memory cards. And then you had a big SAN, like storage area network or a NAS or something like that, where you would put all of the actual storage. So your VM disks would be there and you'd have like a. You'd have a high bandwidth backplane between the compute nodes and the storage devices. You know that could be iSCSI over like 10 gig Ethernet. And then the data center space started to pivot towards like what they call the hyperconverged infrastructure, which is storage and compute on the same devices. And if you're used to like home computing, that's like how it's been for forever, right? But that was kind of a new innovation in the data center space because you have to distribute the storage layer because like you were saying, you don't want storage living on just one node because if something Mm. happens to that node, that storage is unavailable to the cluster. So you have to have special technology in the mix to pool that storage across like physically separate machines and present that as some unified storage layer to your compute. Um, VMware Mm. built vSAN for this, which stands for virtual SAN. And like they built, a virtual storage area network based on these storage pools and longhorn kind of does the same thing. It can present all the individual disks on your individual worker nodes and just create kind of a big pool of storage and present that to Kubernetes. And it's really, really cool. Yeah. But behind the scenes, there's multiple replicas of that storage, which is nice. Right. And like longhorn to present a read, write mini volume, it actually uses NFS under the hood. So yes, a lot of the, is. if you're looking at some distributed storage system or, or some storage tool in Kubernetes, look at, look out for like what tech it's using behind the scenes. Cause a lot of them fall back to using NFS, which is fine. There just are some limitations. It's not the, the best protocol, but it's kind of ubiquitous and it does get the job done. And yeah, that works fine. And then to be honest, if you're building applications from scratch, you really shouldn't be relying on file system storage, like persistent file system storage. If you could avoid it, uh, best practices are to try to put that in some sort of object store, like S three, something like that, just because of the difficulties with scaling and doing distributed storage, kind of at the file system level. These are all kind of clever hacks to get that stuff working in a distributed fashion.
1: That's true. But at the same time, storage is fine. I mean, It's good to rely on, you know, S3 or something external when possible, but storage is okay. And there are some times where you have to, yeah sometimes where it's not possible or doesn't make sense to upload files externally. Like if you have a server, which is going to be constantly reading these files, you know, they, they might just need to be on that server.
0: Yeah, you're, you're right. It it does depend on what the use case is. If you're storing like static assets for a website for the love of God, put them in object storage. But if you're running, if you're running a database or like Redis inside Kubernetes, it don't try to put that in object storage. That's going to be a nightmare. So you're right. It depends on the, on the use case.
1: No, you're right though. With the suggestion, it's just, it's a hard, hard line to, to decide, you know, hard line to, what is
0: it? Tiptoe. Yeah. Object storage when you can persistent volumes when you have to. Agreed. You want to move on to networking? Let's do it. All right. I don't know as much about networking. Yeah, so networking with Kubernetes it's it's complicated. I mean, <laughs> there's no way around it. It's using it's using <laughs> a lot of networking tech from like the past, you know, 40 years of of computing development. So it's running its own DNS servers to handle stuff like service name resolution. Each pod generally is going to have its own IP address that's separate from like your whole LAN or data center network typically the pods have their own subnet. So when you configure your Kubernetes cluster, or if you use something like K3S, this kind of happens on the back end. but it will generate a, a subnet for your containers for your pods. Yeah. And that'll be kind of completely separate from like everything else on your network. Your network won't be able to route to that directly. It's internal to Kubernetes. It is something to be aware of because you can hit limits depending on that subnet size. So, you know, I, I don't remember what they are by default with like K3S. Um, I believe each, I believe each node gets like a slash 24, right? Yeah. I think the whole cluster gets a 16,
1: which is tons and tons. Uh, and then each node gets a 24, which is
0: 255 IP addresses, 255. And typically each node has kind of a, a soft limit of around 110 pods per node, So generally you can't exceed like your IP allocations, but there are edge cases where you can. And if you, if you go looking online, like you'll see, you'll see enterprises that have run against that limit and, and had problems. Um, So just something to be aware of. There are some hard limits at various places in kind of the house of cards that holds up all this stuff. Um, So the pod subnet is one thing. And also we
1: should say um, when you say service name resolution, kind of in you know and I like examples maybe that's just me but uh, this would be you know if one service needs to talk to another one so this is very common between an app and its database for example because in kubernetes if they move nodes they're not going to have the same ip even on the same node it's not going to have the same ip if you get a new pod a new version of the app comes out and you spin down the old one and spin up a new one It'll have a different IP. So you never will connect to your database's IP directly. But in Kubernetes, you know, there's a way to basically say, hey, give me the database that's in, you know, the same namespace as I am. And then Kubernetes will give it back the IP address. So that's what service name resolution is.
0: Yeah, and that's where the DNS stuff comes in. So if you're an application and you want to talk to your database, you may configure in that application's environment variable or whatever, like database host. And that would be like my database. Or if you put your database in a different, namespace would be my database dot namespace. And then like, there's a fully qualified one, which by default with Kubernetes is like my database dot namespace dot SVC dot cluster. I think <laughs> I cluster usually don't I, local. Yeah. Right? Cluster dot local. Yeah. I usually don't get that far yeah. to the right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You usually don't have to. Now, the DNS can be tricky because Kubernetes does, it determines whether or not to look at its internal DNS server or, or kick it external based on like the number of dots in the name. So if you're running like an enterprise DNS server, you may have to fiddle with that configuration a little bit. I did at my house because I am ridiculous. Um, I, I got into a weird situation where I was having trouble like applications would, would be hitting external DNS when they should have been hitting internal. I had to fiddle with that. So it's some, something to be aware of is Kubernetes is running its own layer of DNS before it gets to, you know, your enterprise DNS or, or whatever. Um, so yeah, keep- I had that
1: same issue because I host my ad blocking DNS in Kubernetes and I had to make it not accidentally loop to itself. So yeah, I, I saw similar things.
0: Yeah, so Kubernetes, you install, or it's installed for you, depending on the tool, a container network interface. Like K3S uses Flannel. A lot of the other installations use one called Calico. And for the most part, there's not a lot of configuration you need to do there, but there's some that you can. Like, I think Calico, and maybe Flannel, I'm not sure, they can run like a WireGuard backend, which is kind of cool. So you can get, there are features like pod-to-pod encryption that you can turn on via WireGuard or other protocols, based on the container network interface and these container network interfaces use by default stuff like ARP, which is the address resolution protocol. And that's what maps layer two to layer three, if you're network savvy. So I think Mac addresses to IP addresses. So that's how they facilitate all this networking magic under the hood. Um, If you have larger deployments, you'll probably stop using ARP and start using something called BGP, which is the border gateway protocol. That's the kind of the protocol of The internet, like the routing protocol of the internet, it's also used in a lot of big data centers. But if you're running this at home or to like small to medium sized shop, probably going to stick with ARP and not BGP. But just know that like that networking ability is in there if you need it.
1: Yeah. And also another CNI, I guess um, we should mention is Weaveworks actually has one. They seem to have a lot of tools. That's the people that have made Flux CD, which we've talked about, and they've made a UI for Flux and that Terraform operator that we talked about two weeks ago. Yeah, what's their CNI? Um, I think it's just called Weave CNI. I
0: haven't seen that one actually.
1: It's newer. It's a more recent CNI, but I've, I've seen some some good things about it recently yeah, cool. online, Um, but I, I don't know much about it. I just think it's funny that I keep seeing their name yeah. and keep saying their name in the podcast.
0: Yeah, and like you mentioned earlier, all this stuff is pluggable, so it can be a steep learning curve because unless you pick an opinionated flavor of Kubernetes like K3S or something that makes a lot of these decisions for you, you could just start reading through the Kubernetes docs and it'll say like, pick a CNI and it gives you a list and you're like, I don't, Know why I should choose one of these or versus another, yeah. but at the same time, it does give you a lot of power. So that, like, if you know, if WeaveWorks has some specific networking feature they want to implement, and maybe you need that feature, you could choose that network interf- that container network interface. Like, I've I've got a coworker who he was deploying a specific BI business intelligence software stack, and for reasons known only to that company they required static IP addresses, which in Kubernetes typically is not a thing. Like they're Mm. all dynamic because you want to be able to throw away pods and, you know, not care about IP addresses. It's something you're not really supposed to care about, but he needed to. So I think he ended up using Calico, but with a certain switch that allowed pods to have static IP addresses. Like he was able to configure the container networking interface so that maybe specifically stateful sets had static IPs. Um, and so that solved a problem for him. And so that's kind of cool in that, like, if you need some weird feature, either someone's already built it or you could potentially build one, you know, if you had to. Um, it doesn't require you to find something else other than Kubernetes. You just add the features you need and plug them in. Mm-hmm. Should we move on? Yeah. Let's talk about services a little bit. Yeah. By, by default, like when you run a pod, it's not exposed anywhere. No. Even if in your docker file you've exposed ports, Kubernetes doesn't care about those um, that doesn't mean anything to Kubernetes so you have to there's a Kubernetes object called a service um, and that's where you configure those and you map those to typically by like a app label selector to one of your pods and you say like expose this container port as this service port and you can choose different types there's a few there's like node port, which is not I don't like using the node ports. There's a certain port no, number range you're limited to, right? Yeah, they start up in like the 30,000. Yeah, like the 32,000 so. range of ports. Yeah. And so, I mean, the nice thing about those is you will have the same port number on each node. So you can set your load balancer, if it's outside of Kubernetes, to point at that port. The annoying part is they're not standard ports, right? It's not 80, it's not 443, it's not 25, it's 32, whatever, and it's random. It's stable once you build out the service. Um, so node ports are one cluster IP is another that will give the service an inside Kubernetes IP across the cluster. So not exposed externally. And
1: that's yep. Not exposed externally at all, which is useful, you know, for like a database, which you yeah. don't want exposed externally right. in most cases. Right. So
0: that would be if you want another Kubernetes application to talk to this service, like a database service, yep. you can actually set the cluster IP to none. And, they will not give it a cluster IP. So what happens in that case is when you're like, let's talk, let's, you know, application database scenario, when your application queries Kubernetes DNS for that service name, the Kubernetes core DNS service will return all of the individual pod IPs you know, on that internal pod network. If you have a cluster IP, if you have it not set to none, it'll return kind of the cube proxy, like load balancer IP, which is kind of in the weeds, but there are situations where you might want to do that. Yeah. So let's see, we talked about node ports, talked about cluster IPs, and then there's... A there's also load, load balancers, balancers, yeah, which by default don't do anything.
1: You need some sort of a system that can work with that. So in the cloud environments, for example, it'll give you an actual native load balancer. So if you have, you know, a, a Google Cloud cluster, a GKE cluster... It'll actually create a native Google load balancer for you. And there you know are tools to do that, you know, in a self-hosted way too. But basically, you know, you want a static IP address that points to that service specifically when you create a load balancer.
0: And these are like external IPs, like not internal Mm -hmm. Kubernetes IPs. In the case of the cloud environments, they're actual external, publicly routable IPs on the internet. If you're using if you're like a self-hosted or on-prem deployment, they're usually like LAN IPs or like your, you know, your data center network IPs. A service that we've used for this and we've had pretty good success with is one called metal LB. And kind of like we talked about with the other networking pieces, it can use ARP or BGP for its discovery protocol and routing protocol, but it's pretty cool. You give it a, you configure it with a pool of IP addresses that it can assign, and then it will assign them as you create these load balancer services. And then whatever, you know, whatever node your service or your pod with that service is running on, it'll get proxied correctly. And it's, it's really slick. I've had no issues with it. Um, I don't know that we're using it in production anywhere. I mean, I use it in production at my house. That's true. I, I know we've got some, we've got a client that uses VMware Tanzu and I think metal LB is an option that they support. So mm-hmm. It's definitely supported in that configuration. Although I think they ended up using like a special VMware service for their load balancer.
1: So the reason you would want this sort of thing is uh, basically the issue I was you know, first having when I deployed my cluster before I was using Metal LB was um, I can deploy an application and I want to basically, since I have a consumer router I wanna set up a port forward so that when someone hits my home IP address uh, at some port it takes them to that service and the problem is i didn't want to use a node port because in my router i could you know pass a single node ip address but then if that node goes down even if i have two others the application is gone so this is what metal LB solves
0: Oh, right, because you'd have to, like, in your home router, you can only port forward to, like, one IP address, right? Like one Exactly, yeah, it's just a
1: single IP. It's not doing health checks. So in this case, um, I can have MetalLB assign an actual IP address within my network to that service, and then I can port forward my router to that, and then my whole Kubernetes cluster will respond, depending on which node the application
0: is running on. So say you have, like, multiple web servers or web applications are you setting up a service for each one of those um
1: no i mean usually you use an ingress i was just simplifying the example but
0: yeah but like let's talk about ingresses <laughs> <laughs> <Same> <laughs> way.
1: cool so yeah no you don't want to uh most hosting environments don't just expose a service directly to the internet you usually have something in between called a proxy and in the past that's been Apache 2. Nowadays it's Nginx or Caddy or Traffic or something like that. And in Kubernetes, those are all called an ingress controller. So you have your controller, and then you know, similar to services, Kubernetes has a way that you can configure, okay, this application should live at, you know, this host name, this path with this HTTPS certificate, and it kind of follows that deployment orchestration strategy where I don't need to exactly say like, this is what I want my configuration to look like. I just say, Hey, I want this site to be at this host and Kubernetes and the ingress controller will figure out, you know, what config matches up to that.
0: Yeah. So you, the ingress controller will have a, like typically a load balancer service associated with it. Yes. But then your individual applications, they'll usually have a service, but it's usually like a cluster IP service. It's not external. And then they'll have an ingress as well that, like you said, maps their host name. And like, if they're using TLS, like what certificate to use and stuff like that. And then the ingress controller just magically generates all those configurations. I, when I switched to Kubernetes from my VM infrastructure, like at home, I was pretty nervous about how all this would work because I'm, I was not really strong with like reverse proxy configs. I was Mm. using HA proxy at the time. So I had like a config that worked and I was impressed at how easy it was to get all the ingress objects set up and just working fine like you don't really have to understand you don't have to understand the inner workings of nginx in for in most cases if you need specific nginx configuration or whatever ingress controller you want to use you can supply those typically via kubernetes annotations in the ingress object and you can get as powerful as you want but if you don't need those it's like i had no issues and i was a complete like setting up reverse proxies correctly.
1: Yeah. And it does generate a bit, very large configuration file behind the scenes. So it's nice for that to all be automated. Um, and there are lots of other Ingress controllers. Um, Ingress Nginx seems to kind of be the default and it, I, it's given me no reason to move to another one really, but there are lots out there. If you know, if you're feeling adventurous.
0: And there's actually two flavors of Nginx. There's Ingress Nginx, which we use. There's also yeah. Nginx, ingress which is maintained by the nginx project directly
1: right yeah so ingress nginx is maintained by i think it's a kubernetes sig a special interest group Um, yeah and so it's it's official adjacent kubernetes project whereas yeah nginx ingress is maintained by the nginx team and i've seen people using both but it still seems like the default is ingress nginx
0: Yeah, I personally, I tried to play with traffic and I I felt like I ended up fighting it a lot. I'm sure there's pros out there who are like, oh, traffic's easy to set up with Kubernetes. I know traffic's, a lot of folks using Docker Compose like traffic because it does some automatic discovery stuff, but I just felt like I was fighting it the whole time when I tried to use it with Kubernetes.
1: Yeah, traffic added a lot of specialized configuration just for it and was less standard, which I, I was a little frustrated by. Um, and there were lots of others. I can't think of any examples right now, but I've tried. Um, I played lot. with
0: Contour, which I think is, I think it uses like the Envoy proxy under the hood. HAProxy has one, yeah. or there's one that uses HAProxy, which I originally tried because I was coming from HAProxy and I thought, oh, this will, I'll just import my config as a config map, and like mm. that wasn't required at all. It it didn't help, so I moved to Ingress-Nginx because it it seemed better documented than whatever I was using.
1: Mm, nice. I think that's all on ingresses, honestly. It's weird that it's a simpler topic. I guess we could mention, um, I'll just say that. We should also mention that ingresses don't, at least as far as I've seen, don't really limit you either. Uh, they, they still allow you to do lots of configuration. Kubernetes has uh, things called labels and annotations, uh, which labels are used to kind of add metadata for filtering and searching and getting things later. Um, and then annotations are a lot of times for configuration and that's how ingresses work. If you need any special Nginx config or, you know, some weird special case, it's not like the ingress is so simple that you can't do that. Ingress Nginx has a lot of different annotations they support. So you probably can do whatever you need to do.
0: Yeah. They have a lot that they support in the regular Kubernetes format. Yep. And then they also support like a configuration snippet where you can just throw in like the just raw NGINX configuration. syntax. Yeah, and it's, if there's a way to do it on the kind of more native annotation side, you should probably do that instead. The configuration snippets can get a little ugly, but they're there if you need them.
1: Yep, so let's move on to application lifecycle, yeah?
0: Yeah, so we've talked about kind of the standard of like, I have an application and it has a database. So let's talk about what that would look like. Like, what, what kind of objects are you deploying in Kubernetes to get that to work? So like, an application... Let's say it has some persistent storage, which we've solved for earlier. Um, and let's say it's read write mini, so we can have as many copies as we want. What should we deploy for that? Yeah. So there's three different kind of, at least
1: built in, you know, application controller configurations, um, resource types. Um, there's deployments, stateful sets, and daemon sets. So Usually, um, if an application can be stateless um, and it can move around just fine, you know, you can do what's called blue-green, which means this is especially doable if you have, you know, no storage and an external database. Usually you can run multiple versions of your application or multiple instances. So if you deploy a new version, you can create the new one, wait for it to be healthy and then get rid of the old one. You know, this is a very stateless workflow and you use a deployment where it you can't really predict what node it's going to go on, um, but you also don't really care. The stateful set will be for the database, which is more stateful. You want it to be a little bit more predictable. Storage should stick with the node and it's not just throw it anywhere. And then a daemon set doesn't really fit here, but that's more for cluster level services that you need to run on every single node. So yeah, in this case you'd have a deployment for the app, stateful set for the database.
0: Yeah, so some of the differences between stateful set and deployment. A deployment generates well, it generates a replica set and then it generates pods. And you can have as many replicas of those pods as you want to or you need to. But each pod has like a kind of a randomly generated name, right? It'll have the deployment mm-hmm. name and then dash and then just a bunch of letters and numbers. A bunch of random letters. So, they're not super easy to address individually. Like, that's just not our use case for deployments. A stateful set will generate pods, but they will have predictable names. So, if you have three replicas of your database, right, you'll have like DB 0, DB 1, DB 2. And that can be useful in certain scenarios. You know, if an application needs to talk to specific, like, you know, for whatever reason, maybe an application you give it like, database host one, two, and three. You can give it those names and they're always going to be there unless you change them or replicas, in which case they'll change. But between restarts or, or anything like that, those names will be consistent.
1: And even through upgrades and things. Right.
0: Yeah. Through, through almost anything, they'll be consistent. Yep. And then like you mentioned too, storage, each one of those pods in the stateful set pods will always get the same volume mapped, which is not necessarily the case with pods from a deployment. They just don't really work the no. same way. Those volumes will either it's its like the same volume, right? Like the replicas will connect to the same volume, mm-hmm. whereas uh, with a stateful set, they're independent volumes for each pod, which is useful for something like a database. If you're running three replicas like you don't want that to be all talking to the same volume under the hood, that's not going to go well. So that's the big difference. Stuff that's super stateful need should be a stateful set. It's in the name, right? Which makes sense because
1: typically, you know, like, especially if the database is a high availability one where you are expected to have multiple instances running, the database should handle synchronization of data. So data updates on one of them.
0: Right. And that's happening outside Kubernetes.
1: Yeah. Then the databases themselves will talk to each other to make sure the others are aware of that new data. And that's why you would want separate storage.
0: Yeah. And then you briefly mentioned demon sets, or I've also heard it pronounced daemon sets, which is how I pronounce it, uh, which I don't know which way is more correct, but I don't know that it matters. Um, So like we mentioned Longhorn and Seth, those will run demon sets as part of them because they need components running on every node. Wait, you said demon. Yeah, I did. I I can change. Um, (laughs) Sorry. And then in our in our last episode we talked about monitoring a lot of those monitoring agents also run as daemon sets because they need to scrape mm-hmm. metrics or logs from the individual kubernetes nodes and ship those out somewhere else um so typically like system level services will run as daemon sets and not a lot of other things will like you're not going to really run no. an application this way there are better ways to handle that if you want your application to have replicas on different nodes and those are called like Affinity rules or taints. Or you can,
1: anti-affinity.
0: Right. And you can set different labels to ensure that like if you need two copies of an application running, they they get put on different nodes. Um so you really wouldn't run those as a demon said typically. You yep. mentioned I think you mentioned health checks. I didn't. Let's talk about probes.
1: Yeah. There's lots of probes,
0: lots of different types. I could think of three. There's three, right?
1: Yeah. I mean I feel okay. I feel that's a lot. When <laughs> I was first learning, <laughs> Docker has just what's called a health check. And then I was like, what? The readiness and liveness, and s- there wasn't startup at the time, but I don't know, one to two already felt like a lot, and yeah. now it's one from one in Docker to three. There are three different types of health checks in Kubernetes, and all three are called probes. Um, there are you know different methods they can run either over HTTP, or they can run a command, or nowadays they can run grpc, um, or I think there's a few different other built-in methods you can do. And some will check when a container is done starting up. Some will check when the container is ready to handle requests. And then some will check when the container is actually like failed and should be recreated.
0: Yeah. So this is where some of the cool like self-healing aspects of Kubernetes come into play. So your startup probe, you're going to configure that to basically you can figure like all the timing stuff. Like how often should it should it try to hit the service or the pod? whatever thing you're trying to check, how often should it hit it? How long should it wait for timeout? How many of those should it do? Um, So like if your application takes 30 seconds to start up, you can set that in the startup probe so that you can set tighter intervals for after the startup is complete. So the startup probe is generally a little longer because you want to give that container time to start like your, you know, your application to come up and be able to serve requests. And then you have your liveness probe, which is typically going to be a shorter interval than your startup probe. And that's going to Kubernetes is going to use that to determine, you know, if that check fails, restart the container, restart the pod. Actually, If it fails X number of
1: times, all of these have thresholds.
0: Yeah, there's thresholds and options for all of these. And that's super useful because we've used it for like if an application gets highly loaded and it stops responding to like user requests, it also stops responding to these health check requests, these uh, liveness checks because we have those configured to emulate like what an end user request would look like. So if it stops responding to liveness probes, we know that the app, that container is not functioning properly and should be restarted. And so Kubernetes will automatically restart the pod. So that's super useful. There's also uh, readiness probes, and those are a little different, um, although they may hit the same ports or probe in the same way as liveness. But what those do, are they control whether or not that pod is going to get routed to by one of Kubernetes like load balancer services, typically Kube proxy. so you can set this up to where if a pod goes unhealthy, it drops out of like the load balancer pool.
1: It drops out maybe very quickly, but you don't you don't want to instantly restart it just to save some CPU cycles, so you could drop it out, see if it goes healthy again, if it doesn't yeah. after a few minutes, restart it and those are really
0: those are really only useful for I mean, generally, like web or API type things, mm-hmm. but typically, I mean, it's not just HTTP. It
1: also, you know, this applies to databases. If you restart, restart a high availability database, then the application won't connect to any that are stopping or starting or still loading up.
0: Yeah, and this goes back to kind of what we talked about in our monitoring episode: is like monitor how your services get used. So do your readiness probes and your liveness probes in the same vein as like how other services or users are going to be talking to those pods. Yeah. I think that covers, that covers all the probes. Yeah. It's so none of these are set up by default. This is stuff you have to set up and they're all optional. Uh, Yeah. They're all optional, but they're super useful. It's kind of a superpower of Kubernetes to, to become self healing if you configure them properly. Mm Hmm. So then some of the,
1: you know, application configuration aspects that are really nice are secrets and config maps. So Kubernetes, you know, lets us create secrets, which ideally are encrypted on disk. Um, and then config maps, which typically don't need to be conflicted, conflicted, <laughs> encrypted, encrypted And you can use these in a few different ways. So I I think that they are so cool, especially coming from a world where I used Docker for many years and neither of these existed. You can create secrets or config maps with data that gets mounted to environment variables. So, you know, like key values, or you could just do a specific environment variable, or you could even make the data get mounted to a file on disk. It's really, really cool that you can, you know, use this, standardized single configuration interface to work with IMs or files in the file system or really you know anything within a pod
0: yeah something something to note about secrets they're not encrypted by default they're encoded as base 64 so well that's why I said, no encrypted on disk
1: the the secrets right, themselves aren't encrypted like when you're working like the with objects. the kubernetes api yeah but yeah ideally if you you know if you have everything set up right then you want the actual data on disk to be encrypted.
0: Right. But be careful before you go checking like those con- those secret objects into Git or something those are. Oh yeah. Don't do that. Yeah. Use, use an external secret manager. Use something like Mozilla Sops, Like we've talked about before. Yes. Um, to handle those. Yeah. the The fact that there's secrets in Kubernetes, it, you can get pretty granular with your Kubernetes permissioning, which I don't think we're going to get into like the role-based access control. That's, it's pretty deep um but you can limit yeah you can limit like if you have junior devops people or developers or whatever you can limit their access into the cluster where they cannot pull secret values out so that's pretty cool Mm -hmm.
1: although you still have to be careful if they can you know create applications they can mount the secret as an inv and then check the inv so you still have to trust your people of course
0: yeah yeah but there are some fine-grained permissions that that can help with that but you do always. Yeah.
1: And then one thing I've been really impressed by, you know, I, I have more of a development background is kind of the Kubernetes API is very extensible. So most of these built-in objects we're talking about are just called resources, but they also have custom resources and there's so many tools already out there that take advantage of custom resources. Um, by adding their own what's called a CRD, which is a, a the definition for one of these custom resources. So we actually talked about ingress Nginx. It doesn't add CRDs, but it
0: yeah, it basically uses it uses a first party CRD kind. Yeah, I guess right? I don't like, know. <laughs> I
1: maybe that was a bad first example. Okay, one that does use CRDs is Cert Manager. So if you you know look up any guides on like how do I deploy a site with Kubernetes. You probably want a Let's Encrypt certificate. And the solution that you're going to see online is use cert manager. And it it basically lets you create a certificate object and say, you know, I want to deploy a site at podcast as code.show. And cert manager will go out, talk to Let's Encrypt, get the data um, for the actual cert, and then put that into a secret for you. So the fact that it can add its own configuration syntax and when you create something using that it'll modify Kubernetes behavior, it's just so cool. Um, There are other tools like external DNS, which lets you automatically update DNS records in some cloud provider to match your ingresses in Kubernetes. There's Crossplane, which can deploy cloud resources based on what's in Kubernetes. There's even stuff like, uh, we saw one called Postgres operator, which I haven't actually used, but it looks cool. It creates a Postgres instance and you can deploy many apps to use it uh, by just dynamically creating users and databases in Kubernetes config. So the fact that that API is extensible and it's all you know public open source SDKs, I've actually written operators that modify Kubernetes behavior. And I had a really good time. It, it's, it just has a cool API as a developer. Yeah. Um, it, you know, if you want to work with Kubernetes and you have a good idea, it it might be totally doable
0: yeah cuz it i mean, ingress nginx and the other ingress controllers it's kind of like what the con- the control a controller and an operator are kind of similar right like mm-hmm. ingress nginx is listening for certain events that happen in the kubernetes api and those are the, like the creation or the update or the deletion of an ingress type object and then it's going to do things based on that event it's going to update its own configuration as a result of that and that's what all of these do right like so like cert manager like it's listening yeah. for its certificate objects to for be an object changed or created or whatever and then it's going to go do stuff and that stuff may include like issuing a cert through let's encrypt and making that available as a kubernetes secret which is super awesome yeah. um it's the best way to use let's encrypt ever
1: it is it just takes out so much manual burden all the worry that i used to have of making sure that you know cert bots renew task ran nightly and stuff is solved because if cert manager isn't running then there's a standardized way to check
0: that in kubernetes
1: which is really nice
0: yeah so fundamentally all of these are using some of the like reconciliation loops that kubernetes is just running all the time they're kind of jacking in to that and adding their own functionality based on it which is which is really cool because like Like when you wrote that operator, you didn't have to handle the communication layer at all. No. So the framework I used is called
1: Kube Builder. Um, And we'll we'll link to their site if anyone wants to kind of see what the project structure looks like. But basically, I would, for each resource I wanted to add, add code for, well, what should I do when a resource gets created? What do I do when one gets changed or updated, it calls? And what do I do when one gets deleted? And then you write your own code that synchronizes Kubernetes state with whatever tool you're integrating it with. And then boom, you just made Kubernetes a little bit more powerful or different.
0: Right. And like, you didn't have to write a cron job or anything to no. like listen. No, for it's these it's like, instant. The API will trigger you.
1: Yes. Yeah. It uses web hooks behind the scenes. So it knows yeah. right when it happens.
0: It's pretty awesome. Crossplane is this taken almost to a ridiculous level of using the Kubernetes API <laughs> to basically become something kind of like Terraform. In fact, organizations have entire Kubernetes clusters just dedicated to running cross-plane on them and they don't actually run applications on them, but the Kubernetes API is so powerful. They use it to reconcile all their infrastructure as code into like real infrastructure, mm-hmm. which is, which is just kind of crazy, but it does show how powerful the Kubernetes API can be. Definitely. Man, we mentioned a lot of stuff. Um Yeah. What we, what we haven't talked about is, like, how do you interact with Kubernetes? Like, you know, once, once it's running, like, what do you use to, how do you work with it?
1: That's true. There's a lot of different ways, though. Kind of the standard way is a uh, command line tool called kubectl.
0: There's one I really like called K9s, K9s. Oh, true. Um, and it's like a text-based interface in your con- like in your terminal. So you don't have to run, like, web services or anything. I'm still kind of getting in the habit of using it. But it's been it's been pretty powerful, especially if you're watching for a lot of changes. It's I like it better than like the, you know, cube CTL, like get pods. Dash, dash watch or whatever. Dash yeah. W for watch. Yeah,
1: because that one just outputs the events. It'll just output a new line for anything that changes where canines will update the output. You know, if there's new pods, they'll get added in the list. And if they go away, they'll get deleted, which I wish is how kubectl dash watch yeah. worked. Dash dash watch.
0: It's pretty slick. Um, yeah, I really like it. Um, one, one that you showed me about, I think, so k canines is really good for navigating like your cluster or clusters, you know, multiple contexts. But, um, one you showed me kind of enhances the, the native, like log output of Kubernetes. It's called stern, um, you know, sticking with the nautical theme that a lot mm-hmm. of the Kubernetes stuff has. Um, and it's, you know, stern for like the end of a boat. It's basically tail for Kubernetes logs um, and you can do really cool things like supply prefixes and it'll monitor any pod with that prefix and just output the logs and it can colorize them and do other cool stuff. Um, but it's a good one too. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I. <laughs> it's frustrating typing out the whole like kubectl log command and that's only for yeah. a single container. So I like just being able to run Stern with the current namespace and let it log everything.
0: Yeah, and what what I like is with stern is you know if you if you go to restart a pod but you want to watch its logs when it restarts it's going to get a new name so your (laughs) kubectl logs container or pod name that's not that's going to stop loading like log lines but stern is it's there for you and then i'm a big networking nerd like that's kind of how i got started so i find it really frustrating my go-to when there's any problem is to hop in the container and and start looking at like what's going on dns pinging stuff and, and like we mentioned earlier, for the most part, these containers don't have those diagnostic tools installed for space saving reasons and, and the other things. Um, so there's, there's a container called Netshoot that, that I really like to add. And I haven't used the ephemeral containers much, but it would be perfect for that. Mm-hmm. I just kind of run it as a one-off in the namespace and it comes with, you know, it has dig, it has NS lookup, it has ping and traceroute, out in, curl and any any network troubleshooting tools you would want are like already in that container so you just either like kubectl like run that container or with these ephemeral containers that would be perfect is like jack that into whatever pod you're trying to troubleshoot and then it will bring your whole network toolbox there for you Um, and then you don't have to do junk like Executing into a pod and installing stuff because that's not great right like mm-hmm. you know we've we've all done that of, like get in an alpine container and apk add like dns utils or whatever
1: but nowadays most of my containers are non-root so i try that right and so you can't it even just do that. like kicks me in, and i have no tools anyways so
0: yeah no yeah. it's it's definitely helpful to be able to bring your entire toolbox in a single container anywhere you go it's it super is. nice
1: also uh helm is really nice i I think we kind of covered it in the GitOps episode, but it is, it advertises itself as a package manager for Kubernetes really behind the scenes. It's this really powerful templating engine, um, which is, you know, super useful because applications all, you know, take configuration in different ways and have volumes in different places. So it's nice to have people creating charts out there, um, where you can just say helm install, whatever app I need. And you know their chart will handle a lot of that configuration for you.
0: So that's one that I love. Yep. I think that's it. Thanks for listening. Our website is podcastascode.show If you would like to suggest topics for us to cover or have feedback on topics we have covered, send us an email or hit us up on Discord. Our address is contact at podcastascode.show Join us in a fortnight to discuss a real world example of a highly available dual data center, dual cluster Kubernetes architecture. That's going to be a lot of fun. Can't wait to talk to you guys in that one!